Years ago, executives at a Houston airport faced a problem. They were receiving numerous customer complaints about waiting at baggage claim. And so they listened to the, to the complaints, and they made some changes. They changed the systems by which the bags were taken off of the planes. They hired more workers, and they cut the wait time down to eight minutes, well within the industry standards. But the complaints didn't change at all. People still complained about waiting. So they did an on-site assessment at this airport and realized that, that in those eight minutes, people, it only took them one minute to walk from their gate to baggage claim. And so they stood there waiting for seven minutes. So about 88% of their time standing and waiting. And so they came up with a solution. Now, they didn't cut the time it takes bags to get off the plane. They thought eight minutes was pretty reasonable to unload an entire airplane, get it across to the other side of the airport. What did they do? They decided to change where the arrival gates were. They moved the arrival gates further from baggage claim and asked people to walk six times as far. But now, having walked six minutes, you only stood for two. And do you know how many people complained? None. Because we hate waiting. See, if I'm on my way there, then I'm not waiting. I'm doing something. We hate waiting. And whether it's the trivial things in life, like waiting in traffic, that makes our blood boil. How dare these other people think they have things going on in their lives? I have someplace I need to be. Waiting in the grocery line with somebody who, it seems like they came totally unprepared for what was about to take place today. This transaction should not be nearly as hard as you're making this. I should be moving through this line more quickly. Or in those moments, and maybe it's just me, when you push the elevator button and the door doesn't close, there's nobody else coming. We should be moving somewhere. See, because we hate waiting. But we feel it all the more acutely in the bigger things of life. We hate waiting for our circumstances to change. For things at work to slow down a little, it's, it's going to happen. I, I won't be this busy for long, we think. For our kids to get out of this stage that they're in, you know, this one right now, it's terrible. I'm going to move on to the next stage. We wait for someone with whom we could share our lives, perfect person that we've been praying for who's still not here. For our health to change, to improve, when after years of praying it doesn't seem that anything is better. So we hate to wait. And in Genesis 21, we are, we are finally, finally at the end of waiting. We're, we're told how old Abraham is. He's 100 years old, and, and we were told how old he was when we first met him. He was 75, and so that means you can do that math in your head. We've waited 25 years for this moment. And you would think when finally this moment has arrived that this would be the grand fulfillment, the promise of God, and yet, and yet we still feel the terrible struggles of life in Genesis 21. The party doesn't last all that long. The promised child is born, but the pain lingers. 
Now, as we jump into the story, we do have this, this high point in the biblical storyline. We've waited for this moment. Isaac's birthday is here. It's time to, it's time to celebrate. And you notice, you notice the way that, it's, that it happens, how God emphasizes again and again how he kept his promise. Look again at verse 1. The Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. See, this isn't, this isn't accidental. You and I know the story. This is impossible apart from the gracious intervention of God, but God keeps his promises. The moment of joy and celebration is here. And so that when the child is born, Abraham in verse 3 gives him the name Isaac. And we remember, if you've been following along with us, what does the name Isaac mean? means laughter. Why is his name laughter? That sounds like a terrible name for a child. I mean, we can think of uh, several different ways you can make fun of this kid once he gets to school. His name is laughter. Why? Because his father laughed in God's face at the promise that had been given to him. And yet, that, that, that derisive laughter, uh, laughter that then is repeated in, in Sarah's life, even after the promise is given, she too laughs at God. But that laughter of derision, that, 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 that sorrowful laughter, that laughter of unbelief now becomes here a, a laughter of celebration and joy. Because when the child is born, look at verse 6. What does Sarah say? God has brought me laughter. There is a child. Isaac is here. God has brought me Isaac. I have reasons to laugh. People will laugh with me. They won't laugh at me. They will celebrate with me in joy. Can you imagine what has happened? Can you believe? Who would have made a promise like this? Only God could make this kind of promise. People will laugh in joy with me at this birth. But even with this promise, We've been waiting, not, not, not merely chapters, but, but decades for this promise to be filled. Even with this promise, the pain lingers. Because, yes, in verse 8, we have the growth of the child. The child survives. The child, Isaac, survives infancy. He has received the promised sign of, of God's blessing. He was circumcised. And so now, in verse 8, Abraham throws a feast a great celebration to, to, to rejoice in the promises of God. But, but Isaac's feast only lasts one verse. Because the pain, the sorrow of the circumstances are right in front of us. Look at verse 9. Abraham, or, but Sarah, in verse 9, Sarah saw the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. All right, now that was a mouthful. There's a reason you give people names because they're easier to reference. would have been much easier to just call him Ishmael. He has a name, after all, but, but we're not using his name here because we're being reminded of his lineage. We're being reminded of his father's sin, Abraham's sin, in taking Hagar the Egyptian. But Ishmael, we're told in verse 9, is mocking. He is mocking. That, 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 that word there is, is a word which the Apostle Paul will explain to us in the New Testament book of Galatians. He, it says that Ishmael is mocking Isaac. He is, we read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, Isaac is being persecuted by Ishmael. 
And so there is this tension immediately here of the child born through Abraham's lack of faith, Ishmael. The child born of the promise, Isaac. But, it, but it's even more than that because the, the word here, the, the word mocking, it, which is a good translation for us, but it, but it hides for us the, the meaning. Because to a Hebrew listener, it's the same word for laughter. This is the same word that we've heard throughout this narrative. But no longer it is a laughter of joy. We are to a laughter of mocking. But Sarah immediately recognizes the problem. And so in verse 10, she goes to Abraham and says, here's the problem. Ishmael is trying to take the place of Isaac. The child of promise is going to be pushed aside by Ishmael. This is what, what she says in verse 10. Sarah says to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Do you see what, what's happening here? Ishmael is laughing at Isaac. It, one, one translator says, to, to capture the wordplay, you would say, Ishmael is Isaacing in front of everyone. He is taking the place of the promised son. And Sarah sees the, the problem. But Abraham is distressed, greatly distressed, because Ishmael is his son, likely now a, 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 a young teen. His son is, is now being, being told to be, to, be, to be sent away because Sarah doesn't want the inheritance not merely the promises of, of the physical stuff that they have, but those promises were tied up in the promises of God. The blessing of the land, the blessing of God being with him. She doesn't want the promise of God to be undermined. See, but, but when, we, when, we, when we hear the distress, when we see the sorrow, we might expect God to take Abraham's side in this argument. We, we, we don't expect God to side with Sarah. Because remember back in chapter 16 when Sarah got mad at the pregnancy of Hagar and sent Hagar off, what did God do? God himself intervened and brought her back under his protection. God protected Hagar. And so we, we would expect, when, a, a, as readers getting to this point, that God will side with Hagar. And so we're surprised in verse 12 then when God announces to Abraham, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Wait, what? God, you're taking Sarah's side in this? This doesn't seem reasonable to us. But it's because Sarah actually understands the promise itself is under threat. Because look again at, at verse 12. When, when God tells Abraham to listen to whatever Sarah tells you, why? Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It is through the child of promise that the blessings will come. Now, God is gracious enough to, to give Abraham the assurance that he will protect Ishmael because he is Abraham's son. But this party has suddenly been ruined, this great celebration of the birth of the child of promise. The party is over. Because in verse 14, read with me, early the next morning, Abraham took some food, a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar, set them on her shoulders, and sent her off with the boy. 
They're being sent into the desert. And as we follow her, we find them without water and now without hope. So she lays the boy down in whatever meager shade they can find and thinks, I can't sit here and watch him die. So she goes a distance away. By measurement, I don't know how far it is. They go the distance of a bow being shot, but apparently that would have made sense to all of them. But far enough away so she doesn't have to watch her son die. It's a heartbreaking moment. Ishmael is being sent off to die. This is what this has come to? And it's a reminder for us of the suffering and pain of this life, of those moments you dread. Maybe moments like this as a, as a parent where you fear the worst happening to your child. Those moments in life where you feel out of control. If only I could just had something to cling to. I, I, I could, if I could only get a foothold, then I, I could feel okay. Where you feel like the world spins out of control where your fears of providing for your family seem, seem so tenuous as your job seems like, will it even be there tomorrow? Your anxieties as the loneliness of life threatens to overwhelm you. You may not be sitting in the desert, but you feel just as alone. Where will you turn in times of sorrow? As Hagar sits there, she begins to sob. It's a tragic scene. And yet, in verse 17, we have the intervention of God. Not only is Hagar crying, but God heard the boy crying. And the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? I mean, I mean there, there's some startling things happening here. Yes, we have heard God's voice throughout the book of Genesis, but this is the first time we have the voice of God thundering from heaven. The only other place it will happen in the book of Genesis is the very next chapter, when God thunders from heaven. And what does he call her? It seems so simple. It's her name. Of course that's what you'd call her. What does Sarah call her? The maidservant. The Egyptian. But God heard the crying, and so he calls out to her from heaven, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. So lift up the boy. God reiterates the promise that he had made to Abraham the night before, that this child, the promises that had been echoed even from the birth of this child, that God would be with him and protect him, that Ishmael would become a great nation. Ishmael, one commentator reminds us, grew up under the protection of God. There's no greater one to whom we could put our trust and hope than God himself providing for this child, miraculously letting Hagar see that there is a well, a provision from God right here in front of you. In the desert, refill your, refill your bottle. You will not die here. God's presence and God's provision for Hagar and Ishmael, and yet we feel that sorrow and sadness in our lives. To whom will we turn? Where will we find hope in our suffering? On his 39th birthday, poet Christian Wyman was diagnosed with an incurable form of blood cancer. He wrote frankly about the agonizing effects, both the cancer and the treatments. He says, he says I've had bones die, bowels fail, joints lock in my face, my arms and legs so that I could not eat. 
I could not walk. He says, I have passed through pain I could never have imagined. Pain that seemed to incinerate the very thought of God. Pain that left me sitting there in ashes alone. When the diagnosis came, Weimar was a rising star in the publishing world. He was the editor of poetry, which, if it's not on your nightstand, is the world's leading publisher of poetry. He was at the peak of his profession. And he confessed that, that yes, he had heard the gospel as a child, but, but he'd walked away. He says because his, his faith was evaporated in the blast of modernism and secularism that he had heard as a college and graduate student. But he says the diagnosis, the pain, the suffering started him on a journey back to faith, back to God. Because the biblical story of suffering finds its, finds its fullest expression not here in the life of Hagar or Ishmael, not in the life, lives of Abraham and Sarah or Isaac. The fullest expression of suffering we find in the Scriptures is in the life of Jesus himself. The suffering of God himself, Jesus our Savior on the cross. And so why I'm in the poem, he says, in his suffering, in his cancer, he found a friend. A friend named Jesus. He says, I'm a Christian because of that moment on the cross when Jesus drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, the, the point is, not that, not that God changed my circumstances in, in any way. The, the point is not that I, he was expecting a miracle. This, this is what he says. Facing suffer, in the midst of suffering, he says, the point is that God is with us. He's not beyond us. He's not apart from us. God is with us in suffering. He says, I'm a Christian because I understand that moment of Christ's passion, of Christ's suffering to have meaning in my own life. Christ's suffering shatters the iron wall around my individual human suffering. God hears your cries. God knows your pain. Our hope rests not in our circumstances, but in the promises of God, the promises of God found in Jesus Christ. God heard the boy crying. God keeps his promises. But even still in this tension of Genesis 21, we, we wrestle with, but what's my place in the story? Where, where do I make sense of who I am? The question that, that's, that's forced upon us here in this passage is, who is the true child of Abraham? Who is the true son? To whom do the promises and blessings belong? Abraham was distressed because his own son, Ishmael, was being sent away, even by the command of God. But God promised to be with that son. But look again at verse 12. When, when Abraham is told to, to follow the, the advice of Sarah, we're told at the end of verse 12, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. The blessing comes through the promise of God. This is the promised child. Isaac is the promised child. Isaac is the miracle sent by God. This is where you will find your hope in the promises God has made. And the Apostle Paul in the, in the New Testament, if you turn with me 
to Romans chapter 9, he, he makes this point explicitly. He quotes this verse. He quotes this phrase that it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned in Romans chapter 9. And you're turning all the way toward the back of your Bibles into the New Testament. We've jumped nearly 2,000 years ahead in history to the time after Jesus' ascension into heaven. When Jesus, having died on the cross, rose from the dead, now reigns as the king in heaven. And Paul is preaching this good news to the nations. And he writes to the church in Rome, a gathering of believers there, asking them to, to see how God keeps his promises. And yet immediately they wrestle with the question, but how can God keep his promises if all of the descendants, physical heirs, if the Israelites haven't believed? And so this is the question that, that Paul is wrestling with in Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So the question is, but, but if not everyone who is a physical heir of Abraham believes, then doesn't that mean God has failed? Look at, look at verse 7. Nor, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Paul is arguing that it is not merely a, this, this is not about your, your physical ancestry. This is not about your DNA chart. This is about faith. This is not about those who are his descendants. That's not what makes you Abraham's children. Verse 7 continues, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. The main truth we are to take from Isaac's life, from the arrival of the promised son in Genesis 21, is that to become a child of God is not a matter of your ancestry. It's not a matter of your physical family tree. That was never the point. The point is, do you believe in the promise of God. See, God has chosen Isaac, not because of any goodness in Isaac. He's a mere child. He, Paul will go on to make that argument that's not based on who we are or our own work. In verse 16, he'll say, it depends not on man's desire or effort. The choice that God makes is based merely upon the mercy of God, the promise of God. And so to be considered a child of Abraham is not about whether you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. It's, are you a child of the promise? Have you put your trust in the words of God, in the, in the announcement that God is the one who rescues us from our sin? Have you put your trust in the true child of the promise? Not merely Isaac, but Jesus. Jesus, the Savior who gave himself for us. We hate waiting. The problem is that it's, when we look at the pain and suffering in our own lives, it's not merely a matter of counting down the minutes. Because your circumstances may not change when you walk out here, out of here today. It's a matter of trusting in the promises of God. Knowing that the Savior who suffered for you is the one who loves you. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Are you a child of the promise? It is through Isaac that the offspring are counted. It is through faith that we come to God. Are you a child of God's promise? Let me pray for us.
Lord, we acknowledge the struggle in our own hearts, the sorrow and the sadness that, that make it difficult for us to even listen, to even hear what is spoken. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity to understand the good news of the gospel as it's announced to us in your word that you are a God who keeps your promises. And so, Lord, I, I pray that today you would provide comfort, the comfort of your presence, the comfort of your promise, the comfort of the certainty that you are the God who provides for us because we have seen you do that for us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, for those who, who don't yet believe, who question if this could be true, give them faith now to trust in Jesus. Lord, we come praying in his name. Amen.